Habakkuk chapter 3. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail. And the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Thank you. You may be seated. I ain't going to lie to y'all. I'm scared to death. This is um, this is far beyond me. And that's good news. So. 
Um, I'd say most of you all are familiar with the name Corey Ten Boom. Some of you all may have read some of her writings and uh, her autobiographical work, um, The Hiding Place. She gives this illustration that I've used many times before. I've used it with my kids. I've used it in messages. And she's talking about she used to ride regularly into town on a train with her dad when she was small. He was a watchmaker and repair person. And they would go into town to get parts and to do different things. And Corey had started getting a little older and she said that her dad carried his big suitcase and she carried her little suitcase on the train. And she had questions about some things she'd been hearing at school. And they're on the train, and she says this, And so seated next to my father in the train compartment, I suddenly asked, Father, what is sex sin? He turned to look at me, as he always did when answering a question, but to my surprise he said nothing. At last, he stood up, lifted his traveling case off the floor, and set it on the floor. He said, will you carry it off the train, Corey? I stood up and tugged at it. It was crammed with the watches and spare parts he had purchased that morning. It's too heavy, I said. Yes, he said. And it would be a pretty poor father who would ask his little girl to carry such a load. In the same way, Corey, with knowledge... Some knowledge is too heavy for children. When you are older and stronger, you can bear it. But for now, you must trust me to carry it for you. Man. As we approach this chapter, there is heaviness and depth and glory, and beauty, and freedom in this chapter that I literally pray that God will be able to communicate through his word as we go into this. Let's let's pray. Father, we trust you. And we ask that you would help us by the power of your spirit to receive the food of your word today. And that it would be effective in our lives to the praise of your glorious grace. We ask for your Holy Spirit to teach and instruct, convict, build up and encourage. And we ask it in the strong and mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth. Now, here in this last chapter of this little potent book, we reach the end. And before we get into chapter 3, I want to take a quick look back at where we've been both in Nahum and Habakkuk. If you'll remember, back in Nahum, we saw God pronouncing the defeat and destruction of Nineveh. Nineveh, which was the capital city of the empire of Assyria. And that same empire of Assyria had been running roughshod over the known world at that time, brutally taking over people after people, nation after nation, with fierce brutality. 
As a matter of fact, Assyria had wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C., sending those ten tribes of the nation of Israel, of the descendants of Jacob, out of that land and into oblivion. The lost tribes of Israel are a thing because of Assyria. Assyria had then turned their sights onto the southern kingdom of Judah, where Jerusalem was, where the temple was, but God had shown up and slaughtered 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. So Assyria went back home and left Judah alone. But they hung like a specter over everything that the people of Judah did because they were always in fear that Assyria was going to come back and they were actually going to take the land in. Well, the overthrow of Nineveh and Assyria did end up taking place. God used the Chaldeans, the Babylonian Empire, to take control of the known world after they wiped Nineveh off the map, which is what we saw God foretell in vivid detail in Nahum. So Habakkuk then started with Habakkuk asking God, how long would God turn a blind eye to the violence, idolatry, and pride of the people of Judah? God's people, the southern kingdom, which had been delivered by God's miraculous intervention back in Assyria. Um, back against Assyria when Assyria came against them. How long, Habakkuk asks, will you turn a blind eye, fail to act, and just let this mess continue without correction? God, how long? Well, God answers him and says that he is indeed going to discipline Judah. He is going to discipline his people and he's going to use the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to do so. To which Habakkuk says, wait, no, that's, that's not right. They're worse than us. We're helpless fish compared to them. And we'll be drawn out with Babylon's hooks and nets. And that's seemingly not what you should do, God. In my opinion, from my viewpoint. And then Habakkuk takes his stand, we saw in chapter 2, and waited to see how God would respond to his questions and to his issues. And God does respond. And he tells Habakkuk to write the vision that he's about to give Habakkuk in stone so that the one who reads it may run. And chapter 2 then unfolded with five woes pronounced against Babylon who would soon be swooping in to literally destroy Jerusalem and take Judah into captivity. That's what God's going to use the Babylonians to do to his people. And so God says, I am not, in fact, ignoring Judah's evil deeds. And I'm not, in fact, going to ignore Babylon's evil deeds when they come in and do my work to discipline my people. I'm not going to ignore their evil deeds, their drunkenness, their idolatry, their sexual sins, or their brutality. God sees it all and will bring it all back on their heads with interest accrued. Habakkuk. And so that sets the tone for our final chapter here with patterns established and Habakkuk about to respond to God's response to him. And we have to see these patterns. We have to see the big picture for chapter 3 to fully make sense for us. Assyria was king of the mountain in Nahum. And they were to be brought low to the delight of the nation of Judah. But Judah is to be disciplined for their disregard for God's law. 
And God's going to use Babylon to destroy both Assyria and to discipline Judah. And then Babylon's going to be judged for their sins, including what God has ordained that they would do. So the patterns are that nations come and nations go. God's people are in the middle of all of this history, all of this striving, all of this struggle. God's people are both protected by and disciplined by God for their good and for His glory. And God is overseeing all risings and fallings of nations and the discipline of His people. God is superintending and overseeing all of it. And this cycle has gone on and will go on for all of history. God develops and disintegrates nations and kingdoms. God delivers and disciplines His people. And all of this is in His firm, purposeful, methodical control. To the praise of His glorious grace. Every single bit of it. He's not asleep. He's not ignoring things. And He is not to be trifled with. He is in fact... Now listen... He is, in fact, to be worshipped for all of it. All of it. Which is what Habakkuk does. Here as we start chapter 3. Verse 1 says, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. So after writing down what God had said to him, Habakkuk's going to write down his response to God in light of it all. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. This prayer is poem-like, song-like in its structure, with some, like commentators Barker and Bailey, saying that, quote, the language appears to point to two separate poems joined together, and we'll look at these more in depth as we get to them, a theophanic hymn in verses 3 to 7, and a victory song in verses 8 to 15. The fact that he says, that Habakkuk says that it's according to Shigianoth seems to infer that it's a song. We see that word Shigianoth in the opening of Psalm 7, which is called a Shigion of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush of Benjaminite. The meaning of Shigianoth is unclear in the Hebrew, but it consistently points to song. The Bible sense lexicon defines it as a type of cultic song, a lamentation, staggering verse, or exciting song. But they too... The Bible sense lexicon remind us that the meaning is unclear. But we're going with song. Shigianoth means song-ish, okay? Regardless, Habakkuk versifies his response to God about all of this and writes it down for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we'll be looking at in the coming verses. So how does Habakkuk respond to and encourage his readers, including us, to sing to God? Verse 2, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So Habakkuk begins his response, prayer, song, poem, by addressing God directly, saying, O Lord. And he's using God's covenant name, Yahweh, the great I Am. 
the name that God gave Moses at the burning bush when Moses asked God who it was that he was to tell the Israelites if they asked him who sent him to deliver them. It speaks of God's being. I am is a being word. And Habakkuk begins his address to the great I am by looking at the past. I have heard the report of you. Habakkuk has heard of all the things that God has done, the kind of God that Yahweh has been in the past, and the result, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. And that's quite the statement. I've heard the report of you. And the result is that Habakkuk has a fear of God. Now he's been questioning him. He's been kind of almost accusing him of not paying attention. And now he says, I've heard the report of you and I fear That word fear covers the gamut of what you think it would mean. From reverential awe to straight dread. All those words, everything in between there, are in the definition for fear. And when you look at the works of God throughout history, from creation to the time of Habakkuk, like what we talked about in the patterns just a few minutes ago, it's an awe-inspiring view. Creation. God spoke and things happened. Whoa. Matter of fact, God spoken, everything happened. That's pretty awesome. The flood, that was an act of God. That's pretty fearful. The Exodus was full of things that would make us go, oh, whoa. The death of the firstborn, hail, fire, a sea parting, and people passing through, and then an army being buried by it. These things should make us fear God. The promised land conquest and the battles and the works of God to establish His people there. The establishing of the kingdom of Israel. The tearing of the kingdom away from Solomon's line when he separated the nation into two two countries. The destruction by the Assyrian Empire. That was an act of God when the Assyrian Empire destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. That smackdown of the Assyrian army at Judah's front door, that was an act of God. And so much more. Habakkuk has heard this report and is in awe of this God. He's fearful of him. Your work, O Lord, do I fear. And what does that fear lead to? Habakkuk asks God to do what? Hold back? Please stop? Stay his hand? I can't handle it? No. In the midst of the years, revive it. Revive your work, God. And I love this because he's saying whether it means deliverance or destruction. Whether it means things for my good or things that lead to what I feel like are my bad. Revive your work, God. And I love that. He sees this back and forth with God and is drawn to God's work. He's not repelled or avoidant of it. I've heard of you. It moves me to fear and awe. And I'm asking you to do what you do and do it here and now. Revive your work. Purify your people. Save your people. Destroy our enemies. Revive your work. The word means to make alive or to quicken. You do you, God. And you do what you do. Be alive and well here and now in the midst of the years. And in the midst of the years, here and now, make that revived work known. Do it in me. Do it in my time. Let it be proclaimed and announced so that everybody knows it. And then look at that last clause. In wrath, remember mercy. Mm. It's quite a verse. 
He acknowledges God's wrath, which is coming at the hands of the Babylonians. And he asks God to remember mercy in that wrath. The word mercy is an appeal to be compassionate based on one's relationship with another. Think parent to child. When you discipline your child, you aren't hurting them to hurt them. You love them, so you discipline them for their good. Out of love, out of concern. Habakkuk is asking God to remember that he is Judah's father while he's disciplining them. And the concept of remember is so biblical. It's an appeal to God to show himself faithful to his promises, his character, his love, and the works that Habakkuk is referring to. Not that God could forget, but calling on him to show that consistency even in this situation. D.W. Baker says it this way, The love of God is so strong that even when he is flagrantly ignored, deserted, or rejected, he is drawn as a husband to his wife or a mother to her child to love in spite of the actions of the other. The wrongs are real, but so too are the compassion and the desire to forgive. If the condition for restoration, a renewed desire to acknowledge God, is present to allow the floods of his mercy to be unleashed. This mercy is described in the last part of the psalm, which we'll get to later. So verse 2 thus serves as an encapsulation of the message of the book. And as a prayer, all today need to make to the ever just but ever compassionate God. End of quote. So there's a lot there in verse 2. But let's press on. Habakkuk is going to give a glimpse into these works, into the actions of God, in judging wrath in verses 3 to 7. God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. Selah means a, a pause in a music, kind of like a rest, like a musical interlude probably, and, again, it's, and it's unclear. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from His hand, and there He veiled His power. Before Him went pestilence, and plague followed his, at His heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. So there's a lot to unpack here. Habakkuk is looking back on that report and those works that he mentioned in the last verse and he's relating what that has looked like. But it's also important to know that the verb tenses here appear to be in the past tense at first glance, but they're actually in more of a perfect tense. Let me explain that. An action that took place and is still, in a way, taking place. I went on a diet. Actually, that's probably just past tense for me. It's not ongoing. (laughs) But I did something in the past that's having ongoing consequences, even actions, into today and into the future. So these verb tenses sound like they're past tense, but they're more of a perfect tense. An action that took place and is still taking place. Think of it like something that happened, is happening, and will continue to happen as we look at these verses from 3 to 7. The language overall is hard to decipher. Barker again says this, The language of this prayer stands apart from the preceding chapters and has caused great agitation among interpreters. Albright demonstrated the antiquity of the psalm's language long ago. In fact, the language appears to point to two separate poems, which we talked about, verses 3 to 7 and then verses 8 to 15. Our meriting shows the relationship of Habakkuk's psalm. Now, this is really important. To Exodus 15, 
Deuteronomy 33, and Psalms 18, 68, and 77. Okay? What that means is this sounds a lot like things that have been written about God in the past. And they match up to the deliverance in Exodus 15. The remembering of that deliverance in Deuteronomy 33. And David's singing of God's deliverance in Psalms 18, 68, and 77. Back to the quote. He calls attention to the remarkable power and enigmatic intensity due in part to the depth of illusion that informs it. Its few compressed verses draw on the entire spectrum of salvation history. Keep that in mind. From creation and exodus to the final revelation of God's rule and judgment still awaiting fulfillment. Okay, very important to understand that. This little poem in verses 3 to 7 reaches back all the way into the deliverances of God from the past and points forward to all of the deliverances of God in the future. So again, that's a lot to do in five verses there. Robertson describes this as a collage, a collecting of many images to convey an impression both of past experience and of future expectation. Moses' song, Deborah's song, David's song blend to provide a framework for anticipating the future. I can't overemphasize that. Habakkuk is looking back at God's past deliverances and he's predicting God's future deliverances using the same types of language that they used back then to project into the future. So this first section in verses 3 to 7 show God in action, in full burning brightness and the effects of that action. It's a theophany, a visible manifestation of God. We saw when we went through the pastoral epistles and we sang from 1 Timothy that God is what? Invisible. But he shows himself in different ways at different times for different reasons. And here, the working of his wrath and fury is seen in splendor, brightness, and rays of light. One commentator, I can't pronounce the name, Actemeyer, points out that this is the most extensive and elaborate theophany to be found in the Old Testament. It's a grand display of power, glory, beauty, fury, and fearful brilliance. And the geography mentioned seems to point to God's working in the Exodus. Timon and Paran were to the south of Judah in the direction they would have trodden on their trek from Egypt into the Promised Land. And Habakkuk refers to God as the Holy One coming from those areas. In his path, there is splendor in the heavens. There is praise in the earth. There is brightness and rays of light flashing from his hand. We can't, we can't gather it all. We can't see it. Our tiny little minds go, I think I kind of see a little bit of it. And even at that, Habakkuk says that God's power is still veiled there. And note what happens when God comes here. Pestilence. Plague. Nation shaking, scattered mountains, sinking hills, tents in affliction, and curtains trembling. This is judgment language. This is God destroying the enemies of His people and making a way for them to be delivered and set in their land. God is marching before and with His people and any and all in His path are devastated. Mountains, hills, doesn't matter. We just got back from South Dakota, and there's some crazy-looking mountains out there. Uh, Hannah and uh, Seth and my sister and uh, nephew took a hike, and they were at like 7,200 feet elevation when they got to the top. 
And just imagine that mountain going, because God showed up. These hills, these wonderful, beautiful green hills of West Virginia, just melting as he comes. We can't take it in. God is going before and with his people, and nothing and no one can stand in his ways. No curtains, no tents, no hills, no mountains, not the whole earth, which is said to be measured as he stands. And listen, God doesn't measure the earth like this. God measures the earth like this. And this was true in Exodus, and it's true today. We see more in verses 8 to 15. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. Stop and think about that for a while. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of many waters. Y'all need to spend some time in this chapter through the week, by the way. So do I. I've spent two weeks in it. (laughs) I still don't get it. There's still too much here. So much here to take in. And we, we really just can't. This section goes on to give a picture of God as reigning over and using nature to pour out His wrath. Acts of God, we call them, right? Habakkuk asks if God's wrath and anger were against the rivers or His indignation against the seas as He rode out on His chariot of salvation. Imagine God seated on a chariot of salvation. Or were the rivers the weapon of his wrath? That's what I would ask. He says, God called for arrows and split the earth with rivers. I can't help but think this is reflecting on God's wrath during the flood. And I don't have, I mean, it just seems like it to me. Where God destroyed all of life except for those saved in the ark. And what was God's judgment? The thoughts of men's hearts were only evil continually. So what did God have to do? I've got to wipe them out. Because I can't stand for this evil. Except for those few that found favor in God's sight on the ark. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains writhed. Listen, we saw some places out west where you could tell those mountains had writhed. We see it here. Raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice and lifted its hands on high. The heavens paused. And God marched through the earth in fury, threshing the nations in His anger, trampling the seas with His horses, causing the waters to surge mightily. God hates evil. We talked about that in Nahum. And the flood definitely shows us that. 
And I believe that's what's being depicted here. And whether it's about the flood specifically or not, the picture of the flood, of the exodus, of God routing his people's, all of, all of, all of his people's enemies is all for what? Verse 13 says this. This is amazing. You went out, God, for your own glory. That's true, but that's not what he says here. You went out... For the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. The crushing of the wicked, listen church, listen church, is for the salvation of God's people. God's wrath is poured out on the foes of His people, meaning that their enemies, the enemies of the people of God, are God's enemies. And that is huge. God doing what God does to the enemies of Him and His people ends up benefiting His people more than they could ever understand. He delivers them, His people. He saves them in His wrath. Think of the cross, right? And yes, he will discipline his people, but that's for their good as well. God's plans and God's wrath and God's works and God's grace are all for the good of his people. Please don't miss that. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. Listen, he moves heaven and earth, literally, for them, for us. For me. All this talk and imagery is to show the extent of God's working and warring for his people. And all the earth and all the heavens quake before his power and his working. And he crushes the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. That's complete and total destruction. I promise you, if you get your head and neck crushed and you get laid bare from thigh to neck, you're done. Done. And that's what God does to the wicked for the salvation of his people. And Habakkuk says that God uses the arrows of the wicked to destroy the wicked, piercing them in their heads with those arrows... They had come like a whirlwind to scatter the people of God. But God turns their own devices against them. There's no escape. There's no survival for evil. There's no hope of victory for the wicked. Let me say it again. There is no hope of victory for the wicked. In Habakkuk's day, in the Exodus days, in our day. No hope of victory for the wicked. Because God fights for his people and against the wicked. Always. Always. And so now what for Habakkuk? How does he respond? Verse 16. I hear... And my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. 
rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Habakkuk responds to this reflection on God's glory and deeds and does what? Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Yippee, skippy. Note this, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. What's going on here? To put it simply, he's just overwhelmed. He's overloaded. It's more than his senses can process. And his body goes into shutdown mode. The breakers kick. Can't process it all. He is physically ruined by this vision of this awesome God. God is more than he can handle. And we say it all the time and we mean it, but I don't think we can really fathom it. God is really big. And we're really, really, really small. And so when we see him, hear of him, understand that tiny sliver that we can't understand, it's more than we can take in. We cannot take God in completely. He is infinite and we are finite. All of the universe, all of history, all of everything from eternity past to eternity future is in God. So when he moves, when he acts, our feeble bodies can't process it. We think we've got all the answers. We think we've got it all figured out. We think we know how things should go. And we don't. But God does. And remember that. The tiny sliver of time that your tiny speck of a dust of a body exists in is not even a blip on the radar of God's eternality. So start there when you approach God. And then watch what this leads to for Habakkuk. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Now don't miss that. Habakkuk has seen that God acts and moves for his people. So now he's willing to wait on God's timing for that to happen to those that God is sending to invade and wipe out Judah. Now that may seem a little confusing to us, but ultimately Habakkuk is saying that he has heard God's plan, he's questioned God's plan, then he reflected on God's ways throughout history to act on behalf of his people, is overwhelmed at that acting, and so now he can trust God and wait for God's acts in God's time, knowing that God will literally move heaven and earth for the final perfect deliverance of his people. Even after disciplining his people. Habakkuk will wait quietly through the discipline and through the pain, through the suffering, knowing that God is bending everything toward perfect deliverance and peace for His people. Whatever comes is from God. And whatever comes from God is for His people's good. And it will be perfectly executed to the praise of His glorious grace. And though my body trembles, my lips quiver, rottenness enters into my bones, and my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait. Wait through the trouble for the judgment on the wicked to fall. 
because God hates evil, and as much as He hates evil, He loves His people. Perfectly. So that brings us to this beautiful conclusion. We'll look at 17 and 18 and then finish with verse 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the field yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. These two verses serve to point us to what matters here to what ultimately is Habakkuk's and should be our conclusion from all of this. Whatever comes my way. Whatever comes my way. My joy is in the person of God. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and there be no herd in the stalls. All of this put together, spells economic, physical, financial, and mental, emotional destitution for those in that situation. If this happened, if verse 17 happened, Habakkuk and the people of God in that time, people now, would have nothing. No food, no wine, no goods, no work, no nothing. Figs, fruit, olives, food from the fields, beasts of burden or beasts for meat. If none of this is available... If it's all gone, my joy will not be removed. Imagine you've got nothing. Nothing. Your house, your things, your stuff, your people. All gone. You going to have joy? That's very easy to, oh yes, absolutely, hallelujah, praise the Lord. I've never been there. Habakkuk saying, I see it coming. And it's coming on me. It's coming on us. And when it happens, what? None of this is available. All of it's gone. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk, through this interaction with God, has reached the place where he realizes that our physical circumstances are not to dictate our joy. The creator God of the universe, the great I am, is with me, he is for me, he has, he is, and he will deliver me. He is my joy. He is all and in all. So whatever comes my way, Whatever, I will enjoy Him. Whatever comes my way, He will deliver me. Not with health, wealth, and prosperity, mind you, but with Himself. Nothing can take Him from me. Nothing can take me from Him. I am His and He is mine. When the Chaldeans come, God's in control. When the Chaldeans get judged, God is in control. Nothing is ever outside of His control. Nothing ever. And we rejoice in that. 
We rejoice in Him because of that. Oh, that we could get a hold of this truth. We live in a culture and a society that is full of hurt feelings. And let me tell you what, when people's feelings get hurt now, they fall apart. You offended me. I ain't done. I'm offended all the time. My feelings get hurt all the time. And I fall apart. What if I had something more sure? What if I had something more foundational than just my feelings? What if I had something more sure than just my circumstances? What if I had an eternal God that I could place my hope and get my joy from? We rejoice in Him because nothing is ever outside of His control. All this, listen, all of history is marching toward the glory of God and the good of His people. All of history! By God's design and by God's omnipotent doing. And He delights in us, which should lead us to delight in Him. Not His things, not His stuff, not His gifts. Him. Which is how we see Habakkuk close out this amazing book in verse 19. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Habakkuk concludes all of this by directly pointing to God, the Lord. That's Yahweh Adonai. God, the Lord. I am the Lord. And he says that this great I am, this Lord, is his strength. He's no longer relying on his own thoughts or his own wits or his own abilities to figure things out. He's leaning on God and properly valuing the strength of God, not his own. God, the Lord, is my strength. It's a bold, faithful boast in the goodness and might of God. The same God who split mountains and rides the whirlwind is Habakkuk's strength. That's a pretty good power source, I'd say. Habakkuk then says that God makes his feet, Habakkuk's feet, like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Some translations say hind's feet instead of deer. A hind is a female deer. And they are known, as many commentators note, for their ability to maintain their footing even on uneven, uncertain terrain, especially high up on dangerous hills or rock-covered mountains. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places like a deer, sure and steady on a craggy cliff, unmoved, steadfast. Habakkuk maintains his footing even during the ups and downs of life. Uncertainties, steady. Hard times, steady. Pain and suffering, steady. Discipline by God, steady. Danger, steady. Nothing moves him. And it's God, the Lord, his strength that gives Habakkuk that steadiness. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Habakkuk has completely reposed himself into the strength of God and now he is unmovable. 
He trusts in God to deliver and to sustain him. He remembers that the flow of all history is God delivering his people to their delight. Pain comes, but even the pain is for his good. Discipline comes, but God remembers mercy in the midst of it. God cannot and will not fail to save his people. He is Habakkuk's strength, and Habakkuk will not be moved. The book ends with Habakkuk giving instructions on how to handle his writing. Like some of the Psalms, this book is said to be written to the choir master with stringed instruments. It's obviously a song that is meant to be heard, learned, rehearsed, and remembered in the vernacular of the people of God. Write it down, put it to music, and let's sing this truth perpetually as a people. God is my strength. I will not be moved. I will wait for you. O oh God, our help in ages past. When the flood comes, God is my strength. When the enemy comes, God is my strength. I will not be moved. My feet are sure and steady because he is my strength. May we write it down, put it to music, and sing it perpetually as a people, individually and corporately. Amen. May it be so throughout all of history until we see him face to face. Well, we finished the book. And this brief time in these two minor prophets, and again, minor because of the size of them, not because of the content of them. So we turn our attention today to application from all of it, but specifically chapter 3 of Habakkuk. We'll look at four Ds. I could have had like 18 application points today, but you're welcome Four is all I did. Four Ds. Difficulties, discipline, deliverance, and delight. Difficulties, discipline, deliverance, and delight. First is difficulties. We won't spend much time here. It's obvious from this book and from life in general that difficulties are going to occur in every person's life, every believer's life. Hard times come. Habakkuk knew that hard times were coming for the inhabitants of Judah because the Chaldeans were going to come and the Chaldeans were going to be God's instrument of discipline for God's people. And by the way, not all of them were God's people just because they lived there. Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11. But God's people were going to be included. And instead of judgment for the people of God, it was discipline. We'll get to that in a minute. But when this hard time, when this difficulty does come for Habakkuk and the people of God, the people of Judah, they're not just going to come and take some of their stuff. They're going to destroy the temple of God. They're going to raze, R-A-Z-E, the cities of Judah. They're going to pillage. They're going to rape. They're going to kill. And they're going to take all but the poorest out of the land into exile, marching them bound and literally hooked to far off lands where they will be exiles away from their home. And it's going to be terribly hard. And 
For all history, past, present, and future, the hardships are a constant in a sin-soaked world. The presence of sin in the world guarantees the presence of difficulties for everybody. Actually, for all of creation. Man, beast, and land. We see it in Romans 8. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Anybody been groaning? All creation is groaning. That speaks of difficulties, hardships, suffering. Nobody's exempt from that. God's anointed is not, are not exempt from that. That's why we have to hate the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. We have to hate it because it's unbiblical. For people to say, I'm not going to suffer because I'm God's elect, I'm God's chosen. Um, Jesus suffered, and he never sinned. Difficulties are going to come. Job said it, man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. And I did verify that that was Job, not his friends who were wrong about a whole lot of things. (laughs) Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. So don't count it as odd when hardships come. Can't believe this has happened to me. We're going to move into First and Second Peter starting next week. Don't consider this fiery trial something weird or odd. This is your lot in life. You're like, well, that doesn't sound very fun. No. There are blessings and spots and, and fun here and there, but there will be difficulties. Until you're dead. Then all the difficulties are done. Unless we're changed and Jesus comes back. That's a whole different subject. So difficulties, they're going to come. Know that. Now discipline. Now we mentioned this, I think a couple weeks ago, but it's important we look at it again. Outside of natural, normal troubles, which everybody experiences, listen, followers of Jesus also undergo the discipline of God. For the purpose of holiness or godliness. We saw that in Hebrews, that God disciplines the ones who are His in order to make them more godly. So while we grieve and moan over our difficulties, the the difficulties from the last application point, what do we do when we're disciplined? First, you got to know the difference. Stubbing your toe is not the discipline of God. It's a difficulty. It's hard and it hurts, especially that little pinky toe. That'll make you want to rip your own throat out because you're like, oh, ah!" it's amazing. But that's not the discipline of God. The discipline of God is the conviction over your sin. The discipline of God are the consequences that come because of your sin that God is saying, come back to me, leave that stuff alone. What do we do with that? We embrace it. We see it for what it is and we repent. 
You can't repent of stubbing your toe. You can repent of your sin. So we've got to know the difference. Revelation 3.19, Jesus says to the church there, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under... Oh, that's the wrong one. That's, it's supposed to be Revelation, not Romans. I'm like, where'd that come from? That's Romans. I'll read it because I have it here. Those whom I love, Jesus says to the church in Revelation 3, I reprove and discipline. So, Jesus says, be zealous and repent. That's what we do with the discipline of God. We zealously repent of the evil that He's disciplining us for. And if you're not being disciplined by God, you're not His son. You're not His child. That's what Hebrews said a couple weeks ago, which we're not revisiting. So the application point is here, recognize the difference between the difficulties and the discipline and repent. Be zealous and repent for what you're being reproved for and disciplined for. And that takes some discernment which is another D word, which make a great application point here, but we're not going there. So difficulties, discipline, then deliverance. I've said it two or three times, and I'm going to say it again, and we're going to expand on it here. Difficulties, discipline, deliverance. All of history since the fall of man has been an ark showing the work of God to deliver His people from sin and its effects. All of history is the story of God's deliverance of His people. Why did He do it that way? Oh, I don't know. Well, actually I do know because that's the thing that's going to bring Him the most glory. God in His sovereignty determined that the way that He would be most glorified would be by delivering His people from their sins, the effects of their sins, into a holy, righteous relationship with Him, conformed to the image of Christ by the working of the Holy Spirit as He bleeds the sin from us, disciplines it from us, and we come more and more and more into His presence and see more and more and more of Him and see our unworthiness and rejoice in the grace that He's lavished on us in the Beloved And we're delivered from the evil, from the hardships, from the pain, from the suffering, from the sin which so easily entangles us. And listen, listen, from thigh to neck, God's going to destroy evil. He's going to crush the head and the neck of evil and He's going to open it up from thigh to neck until evil is completely destroyed. That's the story of all of history. We say, why would God allow evil? God's going to destroy evil. That's what we should be focusing on. Not the fact that it's here, but the fact that it's going to be completely annihilated. That's the story of God's redemption for His people. It's a complete, total destruction of evil. And once evil is finally destroyed, our righteousness, our deliverance will be fully revealed. That's going to happen. That's what God has been doing for 6,000 plus years of human history working toward the complete destruction of evil and the complete deliverance of His people from that evil into His presence, made perfect, clean, and holy by the blood of Jesus, by the breaking of His body, so that we might stand before God and He say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. And we don't say, Thanks, God, I think I did all right. Huh? 
We look at Jesus seated on the throne and we say, because of who he is, because of what he's done, and I've put my faith completely in him and the propitiation that he did buy for me at the cross, my sins punished in his body, all my sins taken away, his perfect righteousness given to me as a free gift of the grace of God, I celebrate, listen, for all eternity. Free from evil. Free from sin. Free from myself. And all the universe sings with us, Hallelujah to the Lamb. To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be majesty and glory and dominion and honor and power and praise from this day forth forevermore. That's what all history is marching toward. And we're somewhere in there. Are we at the back end of it? I don't know. But I'll wait for it. Wait for it because it's as sure to come as yesterday came, as this morning came. It's coming. Our final full deliverance is coming. There was a man named Jesus who was born. She'll bear a son, the angel told Joseph, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. That was the work of Christ. And that's the point of all history. For him to get the glory for saving us and delivering us from all evil. In relation to that, in relation to Habakkuk's questioning and struggling and that leading him to rejoice in God's deliverance and victory, he went from God, what are you doing, to God, look what you've done. And you know what we get to do? We get to add a verse to his hymn of praise. Habakkuk couldn't praise God for Jesus. Habakkuk couldn't praise God for deliverance from his sins through the work of Christ. We can. We can look back and remember his great works and lead us up to the cross and go, Wow, that was the fulfillment of all of it. And God, I praise you for that. I praise you for him. He is my strength. He is my joy. He is my salvation. So we get to add a verse to the chorus and the song of all of history. And we get to sing a song about things that angels long to look into. All of history bending to this salvation, this deliverance. And we get to celebrate that. Finally, difficulties, discipline, deliverance, and delight. All of Habakkuk's questioning, all of Habakkuk's struggling have led him to rejoice in God's deliverance and victory. Again, from God, what are you doing? To God, look what you've done. And then finally, God, look at you. The person of God and my relationship with Him is the very crux of my life. It is to be the very center of everything that we are, everything that we do, everything that we think, everything that we feel, whether you eat or drink or any such thing, do all to the glory of God. So I ask you this morning, individually, what is your relationship with God like? You're like, I don't have a relationship with God. You can. You can have a relationship with God because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sins and if you'll place your faith in His finished work and His broken body and His poured out blood, God is your Father. He adopts you into His family. 
And you now have a relationship with him as a child to his father. K.L. Barker says this, The questions of life are many. Two of the most vexing are, Why do the righteous suffer and why does God often appear to remain silent? Having asked such questions, Habakkuk found answers in an unexpected fashion. He found he must alter his perspective on the ways of God with mankind. The ultimate answer to such difficult questions always takes the questioner back to God himself. Habakkuk questioned God, but ultimately the prophet came back to the profound answer for all the questions of life. He returned to the theme of the greatness and the majesty of God. In chapter 3, his doubts have been satisfactorily answered. And here he breaks forth in prayer, praise, and joy. He makes a triumphant expression of undaunted faith. So when the hardships come, when the difficulties come, when the discipline comes, and we wait for our deliverance when there is no joy, we find our joy in the person of God himself. Our Father gives us Himself as we struggle with our doubts, fears, our unsurety. And He is the answer for our heavy suitcases. He carries those suitcases for us. And we rejoice not in the fact that He's carrying the suitcases. We rejoice in our Father who carries our suitcases. Philippians 4.4 Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Two more things to share quickly. The person of God is to be our meditation, our thought, our delight. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, Yahweh, who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. If I don't know anything else... If I don't accomplish anything else in my life, I need to know and boast in the fact that I understand and know that God is the delight of my heart and that he practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, whether it's discipline, destruction, whether it's pain or suffering, or whether it's a baby shower. Understand and know this, that he is the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. And finally this, and we know. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. I can't stop there. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God's force, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long? We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all these things, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I'm sure, I am sure, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor 
anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I know that. Last thing I'll say as I go a little bit more over time. Anybody, I know there's some people here that have been in the military. Anybody ever seen the process where they transfer command of a place, of a fort from one commander to another? I saw this in a TV show and it just struck me. I'm like, that's a back at three right there. The incoming commander steps in front of the outgoing commander and he says, I hereby relieve you of command of this post from all roles, responsibilities, and I assume command and take full responsibility for everything that happens here. And what does the outgoing commander say? I stand relieved. Listen, when God shows up in your life, when Jesus comes and takes the wheel, he says, I assume all responsibility for everything that happens in your life. And we get to look at him and say, I stand relieved. And I rejoice in your command. I rejoice. Whatever comes up the path, you're responsible for it. You're commanding it. You're in charge of it. And I stand relieved. Oh, that the people of God, like Habakkuk, could stand relieved and release command to the great commander the great God, the omnipotent one, the great I am, and stand relieved for the rest of our lives until we see him in eternity. Let's pray. Father, we do stand relieved, and we do wait, and you do carry the heavy suitcases. And you have given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. For your glory, for our good, to the praise of your glorious grace. And God, as difficulties come, as you discipline us, and as we wait for our final deliverance, may our delight be in you. Not your things, not your stuff, not your gifts. You. Only you, God. May we know what it means to delight in you. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. May it be so in our lives, God, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Thank you for being patient with me. I'd rather do this one. If I'd get to the right passage, I'm sorry. Now, now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Church, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, You're dismissed, but stay and celebrate and eat with us if you can.